The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Right now in fast rate shock in the bond market. Six-month Treasury is closing above 5%, the one-year within a whisper of that level, too. This, as inflation is stuck at stubbornly high levels. So what's this move in fixed income saying about the broader market? Plus, a five-star quarter for Airbnb. Shares flying high after hours on an earnings beat. The stock now up over 50% this year. We'll go inside the numbers. And later, is it time to fade the farm trade? A trade school on Tesla, battery troubles at Ford, and the options action on NVIDIA's red Red Hot Rebound. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq Market Site. I'm the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Julie Beal. We start off with the market's topsy-turvy reaction to this market this morning's CPI report after an early pop. Stocks turned sharply negative in the late morning, while the Nasdaq falling more than 1% at its lows. But indices paired losses after Philly Fed President Patrick Harker suggested that rate hikes are closer to an end. Uh, the Nasdaq ending the day well in the green. Meantime, yields largely pushed their way higher, with the six-month T-bill closing above 5%, hitting its highest level since 2007. For more, let's bring in CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman. And actually, you've got some details now on uh, Lael Brainerd's resignation. Yeah, the Federal Reserve just announced, Melissa, that the Fed vice chair, Lael Brainerd, has submitted her resignation. It will be effective February 20th in the past hour. As you know, the Biden administration announcing Brainerd, a longtime veteran of the Fed, has been appointed director of the National Economic Council. Her departure leaves a hole in the Fed's leadership at a pretty critical juncture for the Fed as it battles inflation and figures out how far to go. While inflation was only a tenth above expectations in January, it appears that markets look at the details and came to the realization that the Fed, same one Fed's been trying to hammer for months now, bringing inflation to 2 percent, it's going to be harder than the markets perhaps expected. Conrad DeQuadro said, Breen Capital writing, there's no slicing or dicing of the data that makes uncomfortably high inflation go away. The Fed and the futures market are now in virtual agreement about the path of rate. Markets, in fact, are a bit more hawkish than the Fed, seeing a peak of rate by 526 by August and then a tweak down to 507 by year end, just a bit below the average forecast for Fed officials. Four Fed officials today made clear they see more rate hikes ahead. New York Fed President John Williams, he summarized perhaps the comments of others with just the title of his speech, quote, our work is not done. Melissa? It felt almost like the Fed officials today, and there are a lot of them talking, um, whether it be in interviews or speeches, et cetera, were basically grabbing the, the markets by their lapels, saying, listen, we mean it. Higher for longer. We mean it. And maybe the markets are starting to respond. And I'm wondering, you know, Steve, from your perspective, when it comes to Harker, we had said we attributed the, the market turnaround to Harker's comments specifically. We were chatting here on the, on, the, on the desk about that, and we were all sort of scratching our heads. We were thinking... We didn't really hear too much different from what we already knew. No, I didn't. And on this issue, I would not look to Harker uh, for leadership, especially 
Uh, I, I think Harker is, is one of those ones who's, I think, I think he's right. They're closer to being done. Uh, but, but it's the whole thing here that we're talking about. I think the, what, what, what's happened with this inflation report, Melissa, two things. One is the realization disinflation is not going to be a linear process. There's going to be days like this that are going to uh, come, come along and you're going to have to uh, stomach them and, and believe in your prediction that inflation broadly is coming down, but it's going to take time. So the question is now, where's the risk? And I think when you look at that Fed Red Outlook chart, I think you can see risk skewing to the right side of that chart towards that small group of Fed officials that are in that 540 range. That's where the risk is. I'm not saying they're going there, but I, I've, on the, I've been on this camp, Melissa, of, you know, come hell or high water, the Fed's going to five. I think that is accurate. Um, and the question is how much further they go. And you can see on that August contract, they're flirting with that extra quarter that might bring them up there towards that 540 level. So, um, you know, I, 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 they're all, put it this way, Melissa, it's getting boring. I read all the, 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 the speeches, <laughs> And they're all coming to the same conclusion. Steve, it's Tim. There, there's nothing boring about you. And, and if we, if I think about where the yield curve has gone, though, <laughs> we've gone from having 50 bips of easing between kind of now and year end. And, and it, some of this is just the calendar because we've gone over the last couple months into a new year. But, but again, we're now at 20 bips between now and year end. And after today's CPI, the biggest move really was out in February through April of 24. And, and, and that really is the story of rates uh, higher for longer, but not necessarily any different than they were. No, I think you're right, Tim, but, but that's because the work has been done. The market has really come a long way to the Fed. If you look at what the year-end contract, um, I use January 24 because it's a clean month. Look at the year-end contract. It was trading at 437 on January 18th, which by my recollection is, uh, my re reckoning is just about a month ago. And now that contract you can see there is at 507. So what's happened, Tim, is 70 basis points of tightening have been added to the market here. I think that's good as far as Fed Chair Powell believes. I think he thinks he needs that tightening to help bring down inflation. So the issue now is whether or not that tightening is going to, how hard it's going to lean against the economy, and it becomes something that you guys got to do, which is process that in terms of earnings. Yeah. Steve, thanks. Always good to see you. Steve Leisman. Pleasure. Karen, what'd you make of the markets today and the move in treasuries? So I don't know. I mean, to me, it seemed like that this wasn't particularly great news. It wasn't terrible. It wasn't so shocking. But to sort of extend the narrative of, oh, this is good. We're closer to the end. I don't fully get that. I, I, if it's Harker's comments, that doesn't make sense to me. That seemed like quite a rebound shit, on shit, we're closer shit. to the end. Tim. Hi. By the way, it's, it's nice seeing across the dinner table from Karen. This is we're all still kind of getting used to this cool new set, which is, by the way, a pleasure to be in. We I, get to gaze into each other's eyes. Well, on Valentine's Day, How of course, it's really nice. A um, couple things about today's market. Once again, the semiconductors and maybe it's the AI component that continues to, to, to drive. But the, the dynamic here about where the higher risk parts of the market, the higher cyclicality parts of the market are doing really well. We got a, a Bank of America fund manager survey out that reinforces a lot of the trends and kind of says that the pain trade is actually higher. It kind of tells you that we're in a place here where um, uh, there's my camera. Uh, it tells you we're in a place here where actually if you think about where cash positions are and that although a lot of us continue to talk about how earnings need to really uh, figure out where they are in valuation, the market seems to want to go higher. And, and I would argue that it can go higher. And if I look at where we are in terms of both some technical levels and in terms of the earnings that continue to come in, which are uh, better than expected for this quarter, even though they're not great.
Dan. Yeah, so I, I guess we got to figure out what's the next bout of data that could be hot that could cause investors mm-hmm. to be less optimistic about equities to be, you know, and, and Steve kind of said this, and I think this is kind of important, is like, okay, if the consensus now is that we're going to have Fed funds above 5%, and to Tim's point, we're not going to see the sorts of cuts that were being priced in a few months ago, how, do, how does the economy deal with that? How does basically, how does S&P earnings deal with that? And right now, I mean, listen, they're doing just fine with that, with rising rates that 10-year back from 3, 4, 5, up to, 375. I mean, I would have thought with crude oil firming, with copper going up again, with rates going up, the dollar finding a bottom here, I would think that's not a great cocktail for equities right now. You know, I mean, when sentiment was really bad and all those things were looking lower, that was probably a good time to shift that thing around. But to me, I don't I don't really see the risk reward. And then, you know, I'm like thinking about, you know, Six-month CDs at 5%? Yeah. That's not yeah. bad with yes. the S&P up that's 8% really on the good. year, midway through Feb- uh, February or whatever. I mean, that takes a lot of risk out of your investing if you think about it right now. But I'm on the other side of this, and it doesn't feel particularly great. But I'm actually not – like, people ask me all the time, when are you going to turn change your mind? Not anytime soon here, people, because all that other stuff that I just said, I don't really think we've seen the effect in the economy. And once we see that unemployment rate start to tick up, and it will start to go back up, let's see how quickly it does that. Let's see where rates are. Let's see, you know, where those doves are. If they're all in the White House, that's fine. But, I mean, to me, I think the weight has not been felt on the economy just yet. You know, we often play this game. If you tell me the data, how, you know, (laughs) how would I guess the markets would do? And if you told me the data this morning, I don't know if I would have guessed that the markets would do this today. I felt like the data underscored the notion that the Fed really does not have control over key parts of inflation, which granted our, you know, food and energy, but for Americans, food and energy, and for businesses, food and energy are big input costs, uh-huh. and we're really way. And so you see a half a percent increase in food, you see 2.4% increase in energy, that's a big deal. And eventually that weighs along with higher for longer. So originally then the market's reaction and it started to sell off and down, right. what was it, 400 at one point? Yeah, that, I agree. Yeah. I, then the, the Harker rally, I don't know, I don't really get what that was about. Just looking at the yield curve, this is that same kooky inverted yield curve. It's actually the same yield curve, the same kooky shape, just higher, with that six month at 5%, which I agree is seems like a really. Well, get it while you can, reward. because, right. I, get it, because yeah. I don't think it's going to be there. And, and I think that, well, that's what that, that funky inverted yield curve is telling you. Right. But I don't know, is that the rest of the yield curve saying, oh, that's recession later, just off a higher base? Maybe. I'm not really quite sure. But so I don't know why we haven't been able to get out of this funky yield curve front end loaded. Just the market doesn't seem to care or believe mm-hmm. about the Fed. It's funny. We say market, know. and we've been talking a lot about yeah. like generative AI, right? It's a, lear- a machine learning mm-hmm. sort of thing. It learns based on the inputs that's put in. I think that's what we're, we're in a matrix right now as it relates to the market. <laughs> I mean that sincerely, because if you're a human being and you're processing like <laughs> I all am. these past <laughs> cycles, believe it well, or maybe. Thank goodness. Well, there we could be never inside know. that. Cyborg. Uh, yeah, that simulation. I mean, my point is, is like everything that I know about being in the markets in the last 25 years, when we kind of avert a recession or we avert the worst case scenario, usually it's because interest rates were really low. Usually it's because mm-hmm. monetary policy has been very easy. It's very tight right now. So you're telling me that the only way, like, like rates to come down precipitously, something really bad, guy says this, would have to happen here. And that's not going to be good for risk assets. I just don't feel like the risk reward is very good here. I didn't think it was to start the year, right. but it's much worse than it is, uh, you know, six months Especially, in. as you mentioned, I mean, six-month six T-bills are 5%. I was listening to the, the CEO of Interactive Brokers, Thomas Petterfee, today saying 4.08% on cash. And that's a full liquidity. I mean, Julie, there's so many alternatives. You have questions on this market. There are so many other decent alternatives that actually preserve your principal. 
principal and you get decent interest. Yeah, I, th- I think that's the big challenge for all of us as investors is that, you know, what we're fighting is the opportunities that others have to put your money to work in very, very safe vehicles. And so you look at the markets right now, equity markets, and they're not really priced on the cheap, cheap side. You see a lot of reversion to the mean where people are buying the things that sold off pretty aggressively, particularly in December of last year. And, you know, that makes it hard to really gauge direction. But, you know, we haven't had proper leadership in the market for probably since, you know, the, the start of the pandemic. And so I think what we're, we're coming towards is trying to figure out how much risk am I really willing to take? What are my points of view in terms of earnings? And I think it really is starting to become a proper stock pickers market where you have to look at the fundamentals to get a real understanding of each company's approaches. All right. Our next guest suggests this year's popular risk-free trades have a shelf life. Paul McCauley is PIMCO's former chief economist. He now teaches at Georgetown's McDonough School of Business. Paul, great to have you with us. Why, Shelf? You, you think that these rates only last for another year or so? Yes, that's, it. that's what the yield curve is telling us, as well as the fact that disinflation is clearly in train. Uh, it's not as fast as some people would like, but it's clearly in train. And the starting point is a restrictive Fed policy. When you have restrictive Fed policy and also have disinflation manifestly in train, that's not the stuff of a hard landing. That's the stuff of a soft landing. And I think that's basically what the equity market has been romancing for the first six months of this year. The equity markets seem to want to believe what they want to believe, Paul, and I guess that's always the case. But I mean, I'm wondering from your standpoint, has your view in terms of how high the Fed goes and for how long, has it changed based on uh, the most recent jobs data as well as today's CPI? No, it hasn't. Uh, I've been anticipating that the Fed would go to plus or minus 5%. uh, And effectively, the marketplace is now pricing that, uh, having reversed some of the hopes for a quicker pivot uh, that uh, we saw a few weeks ago. Uh, So in general, uh, the script is unfolding uh, that the Fed is going to wait for uh, beyond a reasonable doubt evidence that inflation is down for the count. Uh, whereas the marketplace is going on the preponderance of evidence thesis. Uh, So it's an easier burden for the market than the Fed. Uh, And I think uh, the market is saying the Fed's going to be successful. It doesn't mean that it's not too giddy right now in a very short-term basis. But fundamentally, uh, I think the Fed and the marketplace, broadly speaking, are in alignment these days. Well, it's Karen. Let me. So this shelf life for the six-month Treasury bill, where do you think it's going and how long does one have to, to buy it at this yield? The six-month bill is the same thing as the Fed funds rate. Uh, they are mechanically linked. Uh, so when you ask how well, long is... They have a is, bit, actually, somewhat, but continue. I'm sorry. I mean, they, they have a little bit of slippage in them, but broadly speaking, they are one and the same. So when you ask how long is the 5% uh, bill rate going to be, it's how long is the 5% Fed funds rate going to be? It's the pivot question. Uh, and I think the Fed will rhetorically, not stress rhetorically, pivot sometime this summer, and then we'll actually see uh, uh, the first cut by by the end of the year. Uh, so uh, essentially the half-life for getting this uh, uh, 5% six-month bill, I think, is probably the next six months. 
It's only February and we're talking about August already, Paul, because you're referring to Jackson Hole. And I thought that was interesting when you said that you think that logically the Fed will probably start talking about a pivot or planting that seed at Jackson Hole. That makes a lot of sense. And you're actually anticipating a cut by the end of the year. So you, yes, you do have, even though, even though Jerome Powell has said, I don't see that happening. He said that at, at his press conference. So you're saying that you don't believe the Fed either. No, I, I believe that Chair Powell has to say that. Remember, he wants his rhetoric to err on the side of restraint. He hasn't foreclosed that possibility. He's just simply said, I don't see it now. And that's natural given the seat that he's sitting in. Uh, so uh, uh, I don't have a, a big disagreement with uh, Chair Powell. I think he's doing a really wonderful job uh, from the standpoint of leaning against excessive exuberance at the same time saying this disinflation is for real. It hasn't gotten as far as we want, but it's for real. And most important, we're in restrictive neighborhood. We may go to a even more restrictive house in that neighborhood, but we're in the restrictive neighborhood. So the next big strategic call is when they pull back from the restrictive neighborhood on disinflation success. And I think that's what the equity market uh, is romancing now. You, you used excessive and not irrational. Was that on purpose? Yes, it was. <laughs> okay. Just wanted to clarify. Paul, great to see you. Thank you. Thank Paul you. McCulley. Well, P Professor McCulley yes. was the chief economist at UBS when Greenspan uttered the terms irrational exuberance, and I was on the trading floor that day. And, and the world is so different, because if you think about a Fed that's gone out of their way to communicate to this market, this was not what the Fed was doing back then. Um, but Paul's been right. He was on our show a month and a half ago or a month ago, and he's been leaning bullish, and he's been leaning uh, on this concept of that there have been this moment, and maybe we had that moment where the Fed kind of peaked. Um, I, I would just go and say that short-term and medium medium term is how I think about this market. And I think we've got a case where 30% um, of the fund managers out there feel like they are not exposed enough to cyclicality if this market turns, that 75% of them actually believe that we're, we're now not in a recession. And whereas it was 75% back in November that said we were going into recession. So I just think we're at a place here where I follow the market clues, which are the cash levels, which are the positioning. And it seems to me like the pain trades higher, even though it, it, the math doesn't make sense in terms of where the S&P and where earnings are. We've got a news alert here on Taiwan Semi. Shares taking a leg lower as Berkshire Hathaway slashes its stake. Christina Partsonevlis got the details. Christina. Well, Berkshire Hathaway's 13F reveals that it cut its stake in Taiwan Semiconductor by 86% as of Q4. So that means ending December of last year. So it's quite a shift in tone since Berkshire bought 60 million new TSMC shares in Q3, making TSMC one of its top 10 holdings. But that wasn't the case for Q4. Often we kind of see these kind of quick movements in and out of a stock from hedge funds less common from Berkshire Hathaway. The stock, though, reacting, like you said, down 3.7% right now, but volume is relatively light. No? Christina, thank you. Christina Partsenevelis. Dan Nathan, would you make a similar move on TSMC? I just think it's really interesting to see yeah. that sort of movement from a company Berkshire. like Berkshire. Active Trader. Which, is, yeah. which is not Fast money. known to be like have their finger on the pulse mm -hmm. of most tech trades. Obviously, they nailed Apple, and it's been a huge thing for him. Um, but I will say this. This goes to what I might have said about the market. Our market is not priced for a geopolitical event. When you think about how things got haywire in the start of 2022, it was when Russia started rolling into Ukraine. And all of those inflationary things that we were worried about in 2021 really went haywire, right? And if you think about, like, 
on a magnitude, if, if things are dialing up with China and there is some sort of like some sort of issue with Taiwan, this could be why well, Buffett is selling Taiwan Semiconductor. Can you imagine the, 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 the troubles in supply chains and semi-shortages and, and the like that, that we you know, were worried about a couple years ago? Well, that's what happened in Q3. I mean, we had supply chain October, issues. Taiwan in Semi was, was, a China, was a China internet stock. Yeah. It, exactly. it was. No, I, I agree. And in fact, they just gave us some numbers. And as you said, they kind of de-risked 23. Um, from a cyclical perspective, pretty interesting time. Buying a stock that's moved from 60 to 100, um, you know, I, I'm cautious on that. All right. Coming up, we've got an earnings alert on Airbnb. Shares jumping after reporting. We'll bring you details from the quarter next. Plus, big news in the plane space. The $75 billion deal that is boosting some plane makers. More on that when Fast Money returns. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Airbnb soaring after the company posted a beat on its top and bottom lines. It was the vacation rental company's most profitable fourth quarter ever. CNBC's Deirdre Bose has been listening in on the call, has got the latest. Debo. So blowout quarter from Airbnb on top of already high expectations. Cost cutting that led to a huge beat on the bottom line. As you mentioned, profitability, net income hit $2 billion for 22, and that's three consecutive quarters of gap profits. Guidance was also better than expected. Investors, however, looking past a softer ADR or average daily rate outlook that is expected to keep adjusted EBITDA flat on the year. Lots of questions about this on the call, but the stock clearly holding on to gains still up nearly 10%. Now, cost discipline also continues to be a focus. Brian Chesky pointing out on the analyst call that since 2019, they have decreased headcount by 5% while increasing revenue by 75%. Now, the company has, of course, backed away from some of their more ambitious uh, projects at the beginning of the pandemic, and that has allowed Airbnb to increase the supply of homes on the platform and stay competitive with other OTAs like Booking Holdings and Expedia. The company is now sitting on more than $9.5 billion in cash and cash equivalents, and they just said that they're going to be using some of that to return capital to investors 
and offset stock-based compensation through buybacks. They didn't have an exact amount, but they said they would do that. And stock-based comp accounts for at least a billion dollars. So you can count on it being at least that amount. Mel, back to you. All right, Debo, thanks. Deidre Bosa. And, of course, this follows Marriott's results that finished the day up 4%, Dan. Yeah, I think you could easily have made a case about two months ago that this was a really cheap stock relative to, let's say, itself in the past. And all of a sudden, though, this stock's up 50%. It's this $80 billion market cap company. Debo just said they got $9 billion in cash. It's a great balance sheet. But here's the deal. You know, this year, expected to grow earnings and sales about 10%, trading 40 times and about eight times sales. It's just not a cheap stock. And those, those growth numbers... Numbers. This is not like 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 I, I don't you know what I mean? They're, they're growing ten percent. Well, they, and, so, and the valuation. And I I think your point is that these growth numbers are coming where I think there's still a lag effect. And I think that if you look at a lot of the travel stocks, and I've said this with airlines, I've said this with some other parts of the, the hospitality place. I just think you've got a case here where um, it, you know, those margins beat are great. Uh, they indicated even that twenty three will look a lot like twenty two. Uh, the revenue the the rev par, which is the revenue per available room, not ARPU, of course. We love all these silly acronyms. But we're back to, in fact, we're well above 2019 levels for a lot of these companies. And that's the interesting part. But can you assume that this growth stays? I I don't think you can. Julie? Yeah, you know, I think if you think about Airbnb writ large, it plays into this, you know, travel trend and bounce back. You still have vulnerability in terms of any kind of downturn, any kind of softness. I think about where in the labor pool is using Airbnbs. And it's, you know, it's typically mid and higher income consumers. Those are the people that I think are going to be the most impacted by any job cuts and any economic weakness we see going forward. I think at the low end, you're actually better positioned. So I think it is still a consumer discretionary stock. I agree. It has the best margins of any of the marketplaces. But I, and I, pro- I think it probably has the strongest network effects available. But again, it's still consumer discretionary. And 40 times is a lot for that. Yeah, I agree with all of them. I mean, there's so many great things to like, a lot of improvements and a lot of metrics. However, right, if you think we're in that pent-up demand and so it's artificially high, even if it just stays at this rate, it's still high. That revenue multiple, at, I think it's close to nine now or above, given where the stock is trading. Everything's great about it except the price which is the kind of one thing I care about most going in-ish. Well, Debo just mentioned Expedia. I mean, this is a stock trading 12 times um, earnings and 1.3 times sales, and their expected growth is better, and they have higher margins, about 86%. So if you like what they just said to you, then you buy Expedia. You don't really pay this multiple right here for Airbnb after this run. All right, there's a lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Boeing's feeling the love this Valentine's Day after a huge order from Air India. The details on the deal and who else is gaining altitude next. Plus, Tesla keeps charging higher, but Dan's been betting it's going to hit the brakes. Why he chose to play the stock the way he did. And Electric Trade School is next. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Boeing soaring to their highest levels in more than a year today after landing a massive order from Air India. The record-setting deal was formalized earlier today. The stock is up 15 percent this year alone. Phil LeBose here with the details on this big buy. Phil. Melissa, this is a huge order. In fact, it is the largest ever placed by a single airline in terms of the number of aircraft being purchased. By the way, it's about 50-50 between Boeing and Airbus. Both companies are doing great with this deal in terms of what it represents. 220 aircraft for Boeing, list value $34 billion. That's about a 4% bump to the backlog. Remember, the 737 MAX It's the bulk of this deal. So the narrow body is what the Air India folks want. And that max production right now at 31 a month, it is expected to go up either later this year or early next year. And that's the importance of this deal. It solidifies the backlog. As for Airbus, well, it's going to be the A320neo. That is at the heart of the order Air India is placing with Airbus. List price, similar to Boeing, $35 billion. And for Airbus, it's a 3% bump to the backlog. Remember, Airbus is in the process of assessing and laying out plans for increasing its production of the A320neo in the United States. They build it down in Alabama. A couple of stocks I want to point out in here. First of all, check out GE. Why? The Leap Engine. Engine, I should say. Built by the joint venture with Saffron, the CFM Leap Engine. 800 are part of this deal. You're looking at GE now at a, it's a 52-week high, or roughly close to it, uh, where the stock is trading at. And then take a look at Transdime. Uh, we don't talk about Transdime a lot, but as the airline industry and as the aviation industry have moved higher, Transdime has certainly benefited. One last chance uh, to take a look at shares of Boeing. Remember, this is a company that they're in the process of expanding production, Melissa, but the key is whether or not they can get all the suppliers to increase their production. That's a challenge not just for Boeing, but also for Airbus, because some of the, so many of the smaller suppliers, they lost so many people during the pandemic, they're having trouble increasing the parts, the components that go ultimately into a Boeing or an Air, Airbus plane. Phil, thanks. Phil LeBeau on Boeing. Um, you agree with this run-up in Boeing? I agree with it. I think there's more to go. And I think there's a combination of not just the obvious stuff. We all know this is a duopoly. This is this is a company that, that some of the biggest impediments uh, around the last three or four years for the company were not these tragedies. We're not necessarily the 730 max, 737 max and the recertification. It's really been about the airline industry and what it's been going through. So um, to me, it's a free cash flow story. It's a story where free cash flow um, could be you know north of 25 bucks a share. Again, at some point, at least a, a free cash flow yield. But if you look at where they're most profitable, they're most profitable around those uh, 787s and their deliveries. And if you look at the order book, some of those are coming through. So I, I don't see why when you hear from the airlines and you hear where they are on their commercial and their international relative to 20 19 levels, why Boeing doesn't get back there. Okay, time out. We just got off a segment talking about travel and how there's pent up mm. demand and how travel she might level off. Out. And so, I mean, it's not really, no, the clock is still going, obviously. Yeah. We're still going to go to break soon. Um, so, Julie, can you get on board Boeing, so to speak, if you believe that travel is going to taper off? Because part of the story is that airlines are doing better, et cetera, et cetera, travel's back. And so they buy planes. Yeah, I mean, you know, airline is is such an interesting segment of the of the industry. If you think about global travel, right, the number of planes in India right now is about 645. In uh, China, it's more like 4,400, right? So there is still a lot of growth that has to happen in these markets as they continue to develop. And so I think if you're a very long-term thinker, you have to think that the opportunity is still ahead of these businesses. I think it's a question of being able to buy them intelligently and ride out the times where 
you know, they're going to struggle in terms of not, sorry, I'm having my lighting issue that I had last time. I apologize. Um, <laughs> the, uh, but the, the challenge that they have is really being able to ride through different periods of supply chain challenges. And, you know, I think longer term for a long term investor, it makes sense here. It's like fun facts about airplanes around the world. I had no idea. 645 in India, 4,000 plus in China. I mean, did you have that, any? No, I didn't. And that, that makes this order all the more enormous, given right. that the base is so relatively low. Right. What's amazing to me is Phil talked about it being 3 and 4% respectively of Airbus and Boeing's backlog, mm-hmm. which makes their backlog for Airbus enormous. $900 Massive. million and $850. I don't know. Over what period is this order? I actually don't know. That I am not sure of. Don't know either. That up, but. but I mean, if you think about, you know, all that sort of operational leverage that you can get from a gigantic order over years, right. that's good. Yep. Coming up, Tesla's surge continues. So how do you manage a short when the stock just won't stop? Class is in session. Dan Nathan will lay out a trade school next. Plus, NVIDIA's chip rip shares approaching a 52-week high. But where do options traders see the name heading? The action when Fast Money returns. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money Podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Another check in the markets today. Stocks closing well off their lows of the day after this morning's hotter-than-expected CPI report. The Dow down more than 150 points, breaking a two-day winning streak. It had been down nearly 420 points at its lows. The S&P virtually flat, and the Nasdaq managing to close the day higher, up about half a percent. Now, one of the biggest gainers today was Tesla. It jumped more than 7.5% for its highest close since November. That stock is now up nearly 70% since January. Meantime, Ford falling nearly a percent, the automaker halting production and shipments of the electric F-150 Lightning due to a potential battery issue. Could Ford's EV pain be Tesla's gain? They just announced a Michigan battery plant. Exactly. With CATL. Which is interesting because I think they're the first that will have 100 percent ownership of this. So Mm -hmm. um, really, you know, they'll get all the EV credits. It's something that actually I think is 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 interesting. Right. But in terms of the Tesla run, it's just astronomical, Karen. Doesn't make it's, any sense. It, 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 there's, it's something else beside that. I guess it's, you know, Elon has been much less provocative on mm-hmm. Twitter. I think that's part of it. And uh, I think that's actually most of it. And that it shouldn't have been at 102. Probably. Right. And the investor day is coming up. Um, and so, you know, the surge has got us thinking that it would be a perfect time for a trade school, Dan, because you have yeah. been vocal. You've been short Tesla. And so we want to ask you a couple questions that we always get from our viewers. First of all, when do you know when you cut your losses? Well, it it all depends. I mean, like for me, like right here, I have a lot of conviction about the fundamental view of this. And to Karen's point, like, did it deserve to be 102? I don't know. But, you know, I started shorting it over the summer at 300. Okay, so like, you know, and covered it at 200. And I was actually very clear about that. And it dropped off the face of the earth. It went from 200 to 100 in a month. Okay, so, yes, it overshot to the downside. For me right now, I started putting a short out, but doing it through long TSLQ. That is an inverse ETF that tracks the performance of the underlying stock when the stock got back towards 160, okay, had that huge rally. I've been averaging into it. So I just want to make a couple points about, listen, most viewers right here, 
Most retail investors should never short a stock. You know why? When you buy a stock, it can go to zero. If you short a stock, it can go to infinity, all right? That's not a great feeling. The other aspect of shorting a stock is that it takes a lot of margin in your account to do that. So when I usually use short exposure, I do it through puts, okay? I buy a put or a put spread or something like that. I'm defining my risk. But in a case like Tesla right here, if I look at the stock at 209, the at the money straddle, looking out a month, okay? That is the call premium and the put premium. I know that sounds, you know, 530 options actually a little bit. <laughs> that is $35. That is 16% wow. of the stock price. That is the implied move between now and March 17th. That's crazy. If you're just paying that premium and the stock goes nowhere, you lose that, okay, on one side of it. That's about 8% in either direction. So how am I trading this? How am I risk managing it? Why do I like this TSLQ? Because I'm long something. Most investors know how to be long something. They know how to manage their risk when they're long something. That's my view on this TSLQ. I've been averaging in, okay, and so right now I'm down about 10% on on my average. That's not great. But like, I know what I think I'm doing here, and I'm not going to let this thing get out of control here. Is there ever a stock that could get out of control? It's this one. It's the upside and the downside. But that's why I'm not using options. The premiums don't make any sense right here. I'm using this uh, reverse or inverse ETF. I can risk manage it a lot better than being short the stock or being long puts. You have been short in the past, Tim. Tesla. Yeah. No, this is, is tempting it- at this point with this run. Um, it, it, to me, on valuation, it, it, look, the, the reasons that I was in this trade on the short side, and I was doing it mostly through options, um, in fact, almost exclusively, was there was a balance sheet issue back then. I, I, I thought there was balance sheet, you know, I, I thought there was absolutely a question about the, the, the continuation of that balance sheet. Um, I, I think there was a lot of things related to just the company's ability to, to stay in business that were part of it. Right. That's not a question, not even a question. Then it became a question of valuation. Look, on valuation, if you, you can get out to 25, and you can make this an 18 times multiple for a company that's, um, so not bullish. Um, if anything, I'm bearish on Tesla here, um, but it's a very different story for me to be playing from the short side. Right. Just and quickly, if Tesla, a TSLQ, where would it get to zero? How much does the stock have I don't to move? Know. I don't, I don't know. To get I, listen, like, listen. This that- is this is what we spend a lot of time talking about. This stuff. This is like one position that I have. Is it not feel yeah. great right now? Being wrong? Of course not. But like like at the end of the day, I mean, I'll just say this. This is one one thing, and I think this is kind of the thing that investors are not pricing right now. I don't think things get better in 2023 between us and China. When you think about this company's reliance on China from a manufacturing standpoint, access to rare earth materials to make their batteries and access to their consumer, they have less than 10% market share of EVs over there. That quarter was not good in China. If there's any hiccups between us okay, in China that get worse from here, this is a problem for them. I think 40% of their sales come from China. This is kind of why I'm in this trade right now, and I think this plays out over the next few months. All right, let's get to this news alert out of the FAA. Let's get back to Phil Lebeau for all the details here. Phil. Melissa, this comes from the head of the FAA, the acting administrator, Billy Nolan. He will be on Capitol Hill tomorrow. He'll be testifying in front of the Senate Commerce Committee. No doubt they will be grilling him about a number of the issues, including NODAM outage in early January, some of the runway incursions near misses between a couple of aircraft. Well, he is out with what he calls a call to action. He wants a safety summit with all of the players in the commercial aviation industry to get together in the month of March. And he's also saying we need to mine the data to see whether there are other incidents that resemble the ones we have seen in recent weeks. We've had airplanes that have wings clipped each other. 
uh, JFK and also around the country. Some close calls in terms of uh, tarmacs where one plane was taxing and was almost hit by another plane as it was uh, coming into land. So this is what Billy Nolan plans to talk about tomorrow. He is saying he wants a call to action. No doubt the Senate Commerce Committee is going to be grilling him tomorrow, not just about the NODAM outage, but really this question about whether or not the country can do a better job when it comes to commercial aviation safety. Melissa? Phil, thanks. Phil LeBeau. Coming up, NVIDIA ripping higher as one Wall Street firm says the semi-stock is positioned to win the AI race. How should you play it? We'll hit the options pits next for that trade. And during February, we are celebrating Black Heritage. Here's CNBC's VP of Business Operations. Having a father from Ghana and a mother from New York with Southern roots, I've always felt connected to both my African and my American heritage. Uh, the values of education and perseverance were instilled in me at an early age, and I take those values with me in my career as a finance and a business professional. My advice to others is to identify your talents and work to attain the skills necessary to succeed in your career, but also recognize that success in your career is about so much more than your technical skills. Mentorship and support networks are a great way for you to build the network and understand how to navigate the workplace. Welcome back to Fast Money. NVIDIA surging higher today after Bank of America said the chipmaker was uniquely positioned to win the global AI arms race. The firm raising its price target on the stock to 255 from 215. That would be another 10% higher from here. And options traders seem to agree with the call. Mike Coe's got the action, Mike. Yeah, NVIDIA traded 1.3 times its average daily options volume. It was the second busiest single stock option after Tesla today, trading nearly 930,000 contracts. The busiest contract were the Feb 230 calls. We saw almost 61,000 of those trading for three and a half bucks. Buyers of those risking about one and a half percent of the stock price on a bet that the stock is going to continue higher through the end of the week. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. For more options action, tune into the full show. That's Friday, 530 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, we are heading down to the farm where Jane Wells is coming to us live from the World Ag Expo, where she's got the latest in tractor technology. Jane, have you kicked the tires? Oh, I have kicked some really big tires, Melissa. I am way high up on a tractor, but tractor sales are falling. Have we reached peak spending? And what the heck is a gopher whistle? I'll explain when we come back. Welcome back to Fast Money. Is trouble brewing down on the farm? Farm equipment makers seem to be losing a little steam after a strong year, and some analysts believe there's a bigger slowdown coming. Jane Wells joins us from the World Ag Expo in California with more on the story. Jane. Hey, Melissa. Yeah, this is a brand-new Fence 728 tractor. Uh, it's made by Agco. Here's what I like about it. You can pressurize the tires inside the cab. They can be more pressure if you're on the street and less pressure if you're on the farm because that's apparently important. You know, 2022 was a great year for farmers. Even with higher fertilizer prices, their net income hit a record $163 billion. You know, the ag equipment makers had a great uh, first uh, last six months with strong earnings, but year to date, they have underperformed the S&P. Um, not a good day to day. Interest rates are higher. Farm incomes are projected to fall. Deutsche Bank and Bernstein thinks we may have hit uh, peak spending and saying that, quote, pricing power is slowing in 2023. But Oppenheimer's Kristen Owen says maybe not yet because supply chain problems last year actually held back some sales. 
You know, relative to say the last peak, 2013, which by the way was the last time we also saw peak net farm income, we're still 25% below on a volume basis in that high horsepower range based on the estimates that are coming in for 2023. Now look at my favorite video of the day. It's a driverless tractor from a company called Monarch, which stops when it senses a human. Company started by some Silicon Valley engineers and one of the Mondavis of the wine family. It's taking over the Foxconn plant in Ohio. Autonomy, zero emissions, all buzzwords here. Some companies are building these new machines from the ground up, but other companies like Agco plan to retrofit autonomous functions into existing equipment. There's lots and lots of new technology. And what we want to do is allow a farmer to do that at a graduated rate in a way that they're comfortable, in a way that they um, maximize their return on investment. I mean, these are huge investments for farmers, and they have to be convinced they'll get a good ROI within two or three years, which brings me to the gopher whistle. What is a gopher whistle? It's when a farmer talks the ear off of a salesman for about an hour and then finally asks, what is this gopher? Oh, about $400,000. <laughs> I was wondering. Oh, I could whistle. <laughs> Thank Go you, Jane. Jane Wells. We You're miss welcome. you, Jane. It's great to see yeah. you. She loves those big tractor machines. Toys. She's not yeah. alone. I know. I mean, man, She's the only one who tractor can pull that off. Look at that. The tire's bigger than she <laughs> Look at her, she's yeah. snuggling with the tractor on this Valentine's Day. <laughs> lovely. Thanks, Jane. What a great place to be. Um, Caterpillar's chart is unbelievable. Caterpillar's chart is unbelievable. Uh, its valuation isn't great. I t- I'd go back to Agco, and, and I, I'd say it's not time for John Mellencamp to do farm aid right now. I think there are good times going on in farmland. And for some of these companies, it's trading three or four times uh, excuse me, three or four turns chief to its historical. It's around 15 times forward. Uh, they had decent numbers. They had decent guide. They're taking market share in other parts of the world, uh, especially in Latin America and, and in South Africa. So I, I kind of like Agco here. I don't love Caterpillar. I just think the valuation's tough. Julie, quick trade on the farm. Yeah, I think the valuations on these are tough. And, you know, you think about the return on investment for all of these farmers. They have to make it work pretty quickly because they can't just assume prices are going to stay as high as they are today. It's tough. All right. Up next, final trade. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Julie Beal. I like Heiko. This is, you know, piggybacking off of the success of Boeing. This is a company that provides replacement parts. and The profitability is white knight. Tim Seymour. Happy Valentine's Day. Great to be with you, ladies and Dan. Boeing, I'll tell you what, I I think this thing goes higher. It's been a big run, but their their game is back in track, their profitability, their free cash flow. Stay there. You didn't say that very convincingly. No, I mean, I just, I wanted to make it clear that we're talking about the ladies, (laughs) and I wanted to turn to Dan and wish him one, too. Karen. Yes. Vamos a Mexico, the EWW for the nearshoring play. Dan Nathan. Yeah, so this Apple uh, has kind of run far, kind of fast. Looks like it's kind of losing some steam, in my opinion. And we were just talking about Tesla options, how expensive they are. They're yeah. really cheap looking out a month in Apple, Apple, believe it or not. About oh. 2% at the money, so lots of puts. Oh, okay, so directionally short Apple. All right, thanks for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow night for another great edition of Fast Money here on the Squawk Set. <laughs> Don't go anywhere. CNBC special taking stock with Frank Holland starts right now. 
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.